The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and joining me as always from Johannesburg, South Africa, China Global South Project's managing editor, Kobus Van Staden. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, as everybody can hear from my voice, I am fully recovered from COVID. Thank you again for all of your kind wishes. Uh, last week was a, a little bit better, but not fully recovered. I got a couple more emails saying, you know, Jiao Eric, hang in there. And so uh, we're, we're all fully recovered now. And I've spent the past week in Washington, Kobus, going out and talking to people. And one of the big issues that's come up in my discussions throughout think tank world, the governments, different uh, services, is this question of Chinese debt in Africa. And there is the perception here in Washington, as it is in many other parts of the world, that not only is China the primary source of credit in Africa, but it is engaging in very predatory practices. We have some new data that just came out this week from the NGO Debt Justice that I think will really transform our thinking on this. And Kobus, let me just get your take on this. This is from the new report that came out this week by Debt Justice. Chinese public and private lenders accounted for just 12% of Africa's $696 billion of external debts in 2020. 35% was owed to private creditors. And that was the big headline, that three times as much debt is owed to private creditors as to the Chinese. Now, these figures are all based on World Bank data. They also found that the average interest rate on debt payments owed to China in 2021 was just 2.7% compared to 5% on non-Chinese private debt. So again, that speaks to this predatory lending issue. And then here's another interesting point. Six countries, Angola, Cameroon, Republic of Congo, Djibouti, Ethiopia, and Zambia, sent over a third of their debt repayments to Chinese lenders in 2021, but twice as many sent a third to private creditors. So Kobus, the situation is very different than the perception. And let me just add... This one little final point. The Washington Post over the weekend ran an editorial about what Washington should do to help Sri Lanka out of its debt predicament, and it referenced China. The United States should use its power as the IMF's largest shareholder to help countries restructure their debts, but this will be much harder to do with the multiplicity of private bondholders involved and with China engaged in the equivalent of international predatory Lending. So there you have it, just on Sunday. So the timing, Cobus, of these narratives, one coming out of debt justice showing that Chinese debts in Africa are much lower than a lot of people perceive, and yet this persistent position coming out of Washington about Chinese predatory lending. What is your take on the data and the narratives and the discourse that's going on today about debt? This is fascinating, and I, I couldn't but laugh a little bit at it. You know, like a lot on, on the China side, a lot of these. Uh, a lot of these kind of data points they're raising are things that we've seen mentioned. You know, for example, the number the number of countries that with an actual Chinese debt problem, um, and the the kind of proportions of Chinese debt. Even the even the the um, interest rates weren't necessarily such a big surprise for me because we did know that Chinese interest rates are you know are frequently concessional, um, but. It's it, just kind of seeing it all together is really is really interesting and it, it's very revealing that the you know kind of that the Chinese debt problem having received so much attention over the last while, whereas the the Western private debt problem having received almost zero in zero, zero kind of focus over the last while, those things happening together is very interesting. Um, and I think it, it's it's going to be it's going to be difficult. I think for for this kind of discourse around Chinese predatory lending to, you know, kind of to continue as is without the kind of counter question of whether this is all of this discourse about Chinese predatory lending isn't just in order to, isn't being put out there in order to draw attention away from the real issue, which is Western private lending. You know, I think that that I think is probably is, 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 a, is an oversimplified narrative, but I think that we, we all probably see some of that narrative around. 
Well, it's interesting you say that because that is the main thrust coming out of the debt campaign report that they said. And let's be very clear here. The Jubilee debt campaign and debt justice have not been friendly to the Chinese over the years. So this is not a pro-China organization by any measure. So in many ways, the critique of the narratives coming out of this report are, to me, very, very credible and something that everybody should take a listen to. We'll put links to the report in the show notes. And of course, we've had coverage all week in our newsletter. But let's talk about this question of discourse and narratives and the conversations that surround the Chinese in places like Africa, but also throughout the global South. Debt is a major strain of that conversation. And we're going to get two fantastic perspectives today on this from experts who've been following it. Kenton Tebow is a resident China fellow of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab based in Washington, D.C. Back in April, she published a fascinating paper on China's discourse power operations in the global south that explored both the motivations and the tactics that China uses to shift the conversation to make it more in alignment with its own interests. Kenton, a very good morning to you here in Washington. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you on the program, and we're thrilled to have back on the show again uh, Tuvia Gehring, who's a non-resident fellow in the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub and a research fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Plus, he is also one of the foremost experts on Sino-Israeli relations and the author of the indispensable newsletter, Discourse Power. If you're not getting this newsletter, you are absolutely missing something special. It's free. You can get it at tuviagaring.substack.com. I have a link in the show notes just in case you didn't get that. Tuvia, I wanted to make sure everybody knows up front where to get your fantastic newsletter. And a very good afternoon to you. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. And good afternoon. And I really appreciated the plug there. And let me reciprocate by just uh, telling everyone who's listening right now, if you're not subscribed to Eric and Kobus's newsletter, then you need to reassess your life choices. because <laughs> This is single-handedly the best uh, newsletter there is on this topic. And it's worth every penny. Go ahead, buy a subscription, buy to your friends, buy to your institution. And uh, thank you again for having me. It's really fun. And we will call to order the convening of the Mutual Admiration Society forthwith. Let's go. Uh, Kenton, let's start with you. By the way, Tuvia, thank you very much. And Kenton, thank you for being a subscriber as well. Kenton, let's start with you on your paper. You heard the numbers about debt. Again, debt is a major part of the narrative. You said in your paper that the end goal for the Chinese is to shape a world that is more amenable to China's expression and expansion of power. But this question of debt reveals a critical failure among the Chinese, on the part of the Chinese, in articulating their part in this, in this conversation. Everybody still thinks, for the most part, that China is the largest creditor in Africa and many parts of the global south, when in fact it's not. They think that they're charging exorbitant interest rates on loans, when in fact the data says otherwise. Speak to their success in what they've been able to do over the years and how effective they've been in shaping the discourse in places like Africa and the rest of the global south. Right. This issue around debt kind of gets to a theme that you that you highlighted, which is some of the difficulties that China has had in kind of publicizing some of its successes versus being more reactive to, you know, some of the Western narratives uh, that are out there about Chinese debt. Um, and as we've seen, you know, scholars like Deborah Browdingham has long been saying um, that this debt story isn't true. Um, and in you all's newsletter, you've been saying it for the longest time that, you know, there's this this really isn't lining up with the data. But um, you're right that China hasn't really been able to get out in front of this. It's more of kind of a, a reactive stance. And We've seen China in recent years trying to be more uh, entrepreneurial with creating narratives, shaping narratives, putting out narratives in a more proactive way versus being more reactive. But they're still still kind of shaping this strategy, still kind of in this more reactive camp. Two of the tactics that I focus on in the report involve using international friends for international propaganda. That's one of the pillars. And then borrowing a boat out to sea, uh, which is a Chinese term that kind of refers to uh, using international platforms and media especially to spread Chinese propaganda in target environments. This includes 
expanding China's media footprint, conducting propaganda campaigns, and leveraging its influence to gain government support for its initiatives in international forums like the UN. And in terms of getting support for its initiatives in international forums, China's been relatively successful at this. A lot of its agreements with countries, especially through multilateral organizations like the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, for example, a lot of the language in sort of the documents that come out of these meetings have, you know, a reaffirmation of Chinese principles like, you know, support for the One China policy, support for China's position on Xinjiang, uh, support for principles of non-interference, which are all these issues that relate back to Chinese interests. And so China's been relatively successful in laying some of the institutional groundwork that it is hoping, it's kind of a connective tissue it's hoping to build in international institutions and in the global south that create kind of an institutional buffer against any sort of future actions that, you know, especially Western countries might take against it. Putting language about supporting the one China principle lays some of the institutional and legal groundwork for if, you know, China invades Taiwan at some point, there's this precedent, this legal, this institutional connective tissue there that establishes that a bunch of countries have already supported the idea that Taiwan isn't a sovereign country and so isn't subject to UN laws regarding countries um, aggressing against sovereign countries. So this is just kind of one way that China's been successful here. And turning to what's been less successful is the resonance of some of its narratives outside of the global south. And what this means is that traditionally we think of Chinese propaganda as being a little bit clumsy, as being kind of cumbered by bureaucracy speak, for lack of a better term. And so it lacks this kind of organic resonance. But in recent years, we've seen China adopting different tactics, um, including using actual people as opposed to bots, you know, on Twitter or on social media platforms to, you know, engage in pro-China messaging using, you know, influencers to try and quote unquote debunk uh, Xinjiang narratives. So they've become more entrepreneurial as since about 2019. And we've seen limited impacts here, but there's evidence of growing kind of organic reach. So that's kind of what I would say is the more of the successes and the limitations with China strategies. So Genjin, you know, some some of these narratives, like, for example, around Taiwan, we've seen, you know, there's, there's obviously decades of of kind of narrative establishment, you know, kind of lying behind the, the kind of core narratives that China puts out around these these issues now. But you also actually look at new narratives and, you know, it, it, like their the success in, in planting, a, a, you know, kind of a, a wholly new narrative, like, for example, the one that you focus on is in, in your Afri- in the African section of, of your report is the, the, the Fort Detrick narrative, the idea that that COVID-19 was was created within the United States. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how successful China has been to to is to establish this kind of like from zero narrative building um, in the global south. Yes. Um, so the one of the case studies that we looked at in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and well, we focused on South Africa specifically, was China's use of content sharing agreements that it has with local media organizations to implant narratives, to implant a disinformation specifically about COVID-19 and the Fort Detrick conspiracy theory, like you mentioned. And what this is basically is trying to plant the idea that COVID-19 did not originate in Wuhan. It originated in a biolab in Fort Detrick, Maryland, in the United States. And so what we looked at was China's content sharing agreements and how they use these content sharing agreements to spread this conspiracy theory. And so what we've what we kind of found was that it was a kind of information laundering is what we've kind of come to term it. You have these content sharing agreements where local newspapers will kind of copy and paste Xinhua content that will then be 
editorialized by Xinhua to kind of say that, oh, look, here in South Africa, these newspapers are reporting that COVID-19 originated at uh, Fort Detrick. So in terms of being successful, the idea that uh, China has to convince everyone that Fort Detrick, you know, is where COVID started isn't really you know, the the metric of success here. The idea of success is injecting a degree of doubt on COVID origins, uh, injecting a degree of distrust or, you know, uncertainty around, you know, Western media um, organizations, and basically moving the needle a little bit away from having Western media organizations be kind of the authoritative voice on anything related to China. And this goes back to, you know, kind of its discourse power priorities. The idea is to move the needle away from, you know, having the West basically define the terms of China's engagement in the world. In part of their official documents and academic writings on discourse power, one of the things that a continual theme is bemoaning the dominance of Western media platforms like the BBC, like, you know, Wall Street Journal, etc. Defining how China is engaging in the world. China wants to define on Chinese terms what's happening in China, China's engagements. And so part of this idea is to cast doubt or erode what they call kind of the hegemony of, you know, Western media and Western dominance of the discourse. Yeah. And if you'd like to get a sense of the tactics that Kenton's talking about, it's very similar to what climate skeptics have been doing in the US and other countries by injecting just enough doubt to have it so that there's other sides. I mean, you know, you see these conversations, there's two sides to the climate debate. And it's the idea of just injecting a doubt into the conversation. Also, not only in addition to the Fort Detrick, but the Chinese have been doing this on Xinjiang as well, trying to challenge the Western narrative on genocide in Xinjiang. Tuvia, let's come to you now and talk about the substance of that discourse. You look at what a lot of academics are talking about domestically within China. At the same time, you're carefully following what Chinese propaganda and Chinese media outlets are doing in the Middle East and in the Global South. Can you talk to us about the different narratives that are going on both domestically in China and then what they're saying internationally and specifically in developing countries? Yeah, so I'd like first to add the one point on what Kenton said uh, about creating doubt. And this is the idea I see all the time when the Chinese scholars talk about establishing their own discourse power, their right to speak, then they say it as xianpo holi. First you destroy, then you establish your own. So now they're at the stage where they want to delegitimize, they want to break the discourse hegemony, the right to speak of the West. And after everything is destroyed from the rubble, they're going to establish a new set of discourse. Hopefully it'll be led by China. And this idea now pertaining to your question about uh, how they speak about discourse power internally and externally. And uh, it, it really depends now who's the audience. And of course it changes a lot, uh, whether it's domestic messaging, whether they try to signal uh, the leadership, for example, uh, just Kenton and I uh, spoke about it yesterday. Uh, there's very uh, limited amount of resources, uh, including attention and money and positions inside the Chinese hierarchy. And people like notable scholars uh, in China are vying for all of these resources. And one of their audiences, of course, is their own bosses. And that's also something important to have in mind when we look at uh, people that talk about discourse power and they try to parrot a local propaganda, international propaganda. And when it comes to foreign audiences, then you have a whole wide spectrum of messaging. So it's really hard to define it in one single line. Uh, but it is a very fascinating uh, thing to look at. That's what I'm trying to uh, uncover a bit in my newsletter. So, you know, Kenton and Tuvia, you both used discourse power, the term discourse power. Um, in, you know, in Kenton's case, it, you know, it was, it's part of um, the, the title of the report. And in, in Tuvia's case, it's the actual name of your newsletter. So I wonder if both of you, maybe starting with Kenton and then Tuvia, if you could reflect a little bit about the, the the evolution of that term, like when did discourse power become such a kind of take on such a central kind of concept, you know, compared to older concepts like something like soft power, for example, um, you know, like like how like where are we in the development of of the concept of discourse power? 
Right. Uh, Tuvi and I were discussing this yesterday. It's a, a bit of a nebulous concept and difficult to pin down the exact uh, moment when it kind of entered into the Chinese vernacular in terms of, you know, a, a concept that helps to shape strategy. But in our discussion, we kind of pinned it down to maybe around 2005, 2006, when China was really starting to think about itself more seriously in its, you know, relationship, China in the world, basically. And there was this recognition that China was in a soft power deficit. But where discourse power, and I would invite Tuvia's thoughts on this, in my understanding, kind of departs from the idea of soft power is there's this recognition that discourse power carries with it structural power. And what I mean by that is that it is a type of narrative agenda setting ability that transfers into a structural power in that it helps to order the international system. And then in ordering the international system, it's creating an institutional arrangement that then distributes material goods. So what I mean by this is the Chinese see the United States as possessing discourse power. And in doing so, it's able to kind of order the international system. Uh, U.S. values that go back to Western capitalism, human rights, democracy, these things structure how issues are talked about on the international stage. They structure how, you know, laws are written, international laws are written, and they even structure how aid gets dispersed. Organizations like the IMF and the World Bank use Western values to determine who gets what money. And in turn, you know, these institutional arrangements perpetuate this idea of, you know, the legitimacy of Western values, the legitimacy of the, the power and the domination of Western values. And so that in turn helps to maintain the U.S., the position of the U.S. as the dominant, as the dominant country in the international system. And so the... China really began to think about itself more, I guess, with more intent in like the mid 2000s. And we see this really accelerating after the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, when China really kind of saw an opportunity to capitalize on all of its economic gains and its, you know, growing material power and kind of the decline, what it saw as the decline of the West to really take its rightful place in the international system. And then that kind of led to the natural question of, well, we have all this material power, but how do we legitimize that? And so there was this kind of concerted effort to really study how the United States was able to establish its dominance. And that came, um, a lot of that came back to the U.S. discourse power. So then we see kind of a strategy of, okay, well, how do we, put forward, you know, a Chinese vision of the world order. And along with that came the recognition that the U.S. was putting forth this China threat theory, as they call it, and China was seeing itself as, you know, it's the, the current international order as being unable to accommodate its rise because of the clash with Western values. So there's this idea that China needs to establish its legitimacy. And also there's not really space for it in the current order. The, the current order is kind of inimical to its rise from a values perspective. Tuvia, let's get your take on it. Sure. So first, it's important to say the Chinese term, I don't think we mentioned it, it's called Hua Yu Quan. And the word Quan, uh, it has two meanings in Chinese and also in liter literature. So first meaning is more on uh, legal terms, uh, like I have a right to speak, I have a right to vote, and so on. And then it also has a geopolitical under, uh, meaning, which is power, discourse power. And the two are used interchangeably inside China, the way they discuss about the uh, this topic of Hua Yu Quan in general. And uh, later, they also developed a Hua Yu Tixi as a, as a system, a discourse system. And uh, just uh, some chronology to help uh, the uninitiated uh, listener uh, make a bit of sense of it all. So the idea of soft power, which is uh, inseparable of discourse power, it uh, started in the late 80s with uh, Joseph Knight. And uh, later it evolved, it has a different uh, iteration. And what it basically means, uh, if you boil it down uh, to one sentence, is try to make other countries want what you want. It's try to make them want 
to do what you're bidding through attraction. And that's in contrast to hard power or what the people later called the sharp power and the smart power and all these uh, different variations uh, where a country uses its military might or through economic inducements, uh, it tries to force other countries uh, to do its bidding. And that is uh, soft power. And about uh, the idea of soft power, as uh, Kenton mentioned, it started in the mid-2000. The first mention of soft power was at the 17th Party Congress uh, by Hu Jintao. He mentioned that uh, something along the lines that in this present era, culture is becoming more important for national cohesion, for creativity. Uh, it grows in significance and we need uh, to improve our uh, soft power. Okay, so it was just a brief mention, but that was the first, and then it kind of exploded um, into kind of a slogan. And, and before I continue to more authoritative statements, there's a very interesting anecdote that uh, is known by uh, Chinese researchers uh, of one vice president of China called Xi Jinping back in 2009. And I think it's very illuminating uh, when we discuss this topic. And uh, if you recall, he was visiting South America, the Chinese uh, expat expatriates, uh, what they call the overseas Chinese in Mexico. And there he said, and uh, I paraphrase uh, for memory, uh, he says, there are some foreigners who've eaten their fill and have nothing better to do or nothing else to do, which point their fingers at our affairs. Right? And his baritone voice. Right. And uh, this idea is very core to understand Xi Jinping's uh, thought on soft power and discourse power. And one of the things, as Kenton mentioned uh, in the first question, is very defensive. Uh, China feels it is under attack. Okay? And because it's under attack, it has to defend. And uh, the way it defends, uh, it could be either uh, through doing nothing or through retaliating uh, with uh, countering or through attacks. And we, th we see all three of these reactions in Chinese propaganda over the years. Uh, just look at the case of Ukraine. At first, they didn't really know what to do also in policy-wise. I mean, look at the Chinese community uh, that live there. And then in protect protecting themselves by distancing themselves from Russia, saying we don't have an alliance, and then to full-blown attacks uh, by mentioning uh, Ukraine having American uh, biolabs there that try to kill all of humanity. And that's a quote uh, from my, that I read. Okay, so that's very important to see this understanding of being under attack. And, and moving on, Hu Jintao, in 2009, he initiated the Grand External Propaganda Strategy. And that's a very important because many of these processes didn't start with Xi Jinping. It started with Hu Jintao. And that's one of them where he allocated, I think, $6 billion to this effort. And from there, we saw a big diversification and growth of Chinese media apparatus in languages and countries they operate. Also in Israel, by the way, that year they opened the China Radio International in Hebrew. And moving further up to the 18th Party Congress, where she is elected, and the road to rejuvenation. If you recall, he visited just after uh, he was elected, he went to the museum in Beijing and talked about the Chinese dream, which is also an essential component of China's discourse power and the way it tries to see the world. And, uh, and I think the most important uh, place where Xi Jinping mentions discourse power is at the um, National Propaganda and Ideology War Conference in Beijing. Uh, there was one in August 2013. And that's where he started to uh, talk about telling the China story well. And he also introduced the idea of struggle over public opinion, or yulun dozheng. And since 2013, you can see global communication or propaganda, then it turned to global communication or guoji chuanbo, uh, has been further reprioritized in line with Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. He puts much more emphasis on Hua Yuquan. And now back to what Kenton mentioned is the way we can define discourse powers also through its functions. And uh, you started touching upon it and I'd like to add a couple uh, of points if that's okay. 
uh, how China tries to improve its discourse power could also kind of illuminate what it really means. Um, so, so, sorry, first the, the goals, right? So the first goal, the way I see it is control. That's the name of the game, control. And what they want to control is the global narrative about China. And Xi Jinping calls it guiding international public opinion. Uh, he also said China needs to better understand the world. The world needs to better understand China. And back then in that conference I mentioned in 2013, Xi Jinping said that in order to avoid making irreversible historical blunders, we must always maintain control over the leadership, management, and discourse power of our ideological work. And this is uh, something that you see evolving in the Chinese intellectual sphere, in academia, and diplomacy, it is all over the place. As soon as you look for it, uh, one of the reasons I chose to focus on discourse powers because it was ubiquitous, it was everywhere. And I just really fascinated uh, by the mention of why is it so important? What, what does it really mean? And this is a country that sees it is rising for the first time in a very long time, returning to the center stage. And it's the first time in the 21st century that it's happening for China. And they're all new to this. We're new to this. They're new to this. And they're trying to figure out what this rise is going to be like. Is it going to be peaceful? Hopefully. And if it will be peaceful, how uh, can we facilitate this process? How can we make it better so the external environment uh, be able to facilitate our own growth and development. And, and back again to the idea of control, uh, we see this in many other aspects of Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is a control freak, right? We have uh, many articles talk about uh, leading small groups and how he tries to micromanage everything. And the same thing goes for discourse. Discourse and uh, soft power is seen as a resource as important as natural natural resources. And uh, I think it was in 2016, uh, there was another conference headed by Xi Jinping on social sciences and philosophy. And there he says the exact same thing. A great country can only be great once it has control of its natural resources. At the same time, it also have to have control. It has to have control of you know, the more spiritual resources, that is philosophy and social sciences. And uh, from there, they established the idea of the three systems, which is disciplinary system, academic system, and discourse system. And they're all kind of mishmashed together. So that's uh, one thing. A second thing, uh, and let me know uh, if uh, you want to uh, elaborate on some of the theme, is to set the global agendas, as uh, Kento mentioned, to influence, to shape uh, values, governance, discussions of how the world sees Beijing, how Beijing sees the world, and how people in China see their own country. And it has to be commensurate, and that's the key uh, term here, it has to be commensurate with its economic and military power. Because as of right now, China aspires to become a great power, but it also has to become uh, not just military and economic, but also an ideological power, uh, to quote uh, Zheng Yongnian, for example, Chinese University of Hong Kong. And a third uh, reason that they want to have discourse power is, uh, of course, to maintain the absolute control of the CCP. It's Jue uh, Dui, Zhu Chuan, as uh, I references it in my uh, newsletter by uh, Zhang Weiwei. Uh, control, control, control. It's all about control. And uh, maintaining power through discourse. Uh, here there's another uh, expert. Uh, Canton actually uh, quoted him in uh, her uh, report that is forthcoming talking about philosophy and sciences. And uh, his name is Zhang Jizhou. He's one of the foremost experts on discourse power in China. He says, we need to maintain power through discourse. So this is the ability to shape reality through your words, which is, you know, it's a very important idea. It's uh, also uh, essential uh, in Chinese history in general. You can see it all over, also in uh, Judaism too. So the way you control the world through your words, right? Moses, the prophet, he, instead of uh, hitting the stone, uh, he should have talked to it, right? So the same thing with the Chinese people, the same thing with the people of the world that are uneducated about China. They don't know enough, but we know because we're Chinese. We're living through it and we uh, are also able to shape 
reality, create a reality. And the reality we want to shape is a community of shared future for mankind. We want to improve global governance because as of right now, uh, the West isn't doing a pretty good job. And uh, China is a builder of a world, a world peace. It contributes to global development. It's upholder of the international order and so on and so on. So this is the idea. And uh, I think Ching Yaqing, uh, he kind of mentioned it in a very interesting uh, article uh, in uh, March, I think. It was he offered uh, the importance of China's role in global governance. And, and he, he, first of all, he mentioned something that is super important to understand. China sees that fifth of the uh, world's population are Chinese. This means that whether you like it or not, they're going to have to have a say. Uh, that's why they have to have a global discourse power, because they are fifth of humanity. And also, uh, as I mentioned, it needs to have a favorable external environment. And external environment, uh, Yan Xuetong, uh, I think it was shared uh, yesterday or two days ago by uh, Cixin Wang, who talked about China's uh, ongoing strife and struggles with its neighbors, um, to mention the South China Sea country, littoral countries, and India. And this is not very favorable external environment. Now, and I'm not even mentioning uh, China-US relations or China-Europe relations. And the third point, and that's where I'll end, is uh, where this bilateral relation, which is the most important in the world of China and the US, it reached, it reached uh, rock bottom. Okay, It can't get any worse than it is now. Uh, then. It's an opportunity for China and the U.S. to cooperate. Uh, and this course in global governance uh, is one part to do it. It's not, not necessarily a bad thing. Kenton, we've spent the past half hour now kind of dissecting what the Chinese are doing. Two of you just laid it out very clearly for us about the different motivations. Your report kind of talks about the tactics and also the motivations as well. Help us put it into a slightly broader context. China is by no means exceptional in its desire to shape the discourse. The United States spends millions of dollars on public diplomacy. It has its own propaganda outlets like Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, and all these different outlets. I used to be the editor-in-chief of France 24, which received a quarter of a billion euros from the French government. That was not for charity. That was also to help shape the narrative as well. So lots of governments engage in this type of discourse-shaping exercises. Very quickly, because we're running short on time, can you put the Chinese in the context of where they are relative to their other major power peers? Uh, so I would say that they're still pretty far behind. If you look at the presence of Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, all of these, you know, other kind of organs of narrative dissemination, China's uh, reach is much more limited because they have a lot, you know, they've only fairly recently started to invest in the, these kind of capabilities. I think Tuvia mentioned, you know, kind of the going out uh, campaigns in 2008, 2009. That's when we really saw China starting to invest resources and in going abroad and, you know, trying to spread Chinese narratives abroad versus, you know, the United States, who's been kind of the dominant force in the international system, you know, since, you know, the end of uh, World War II. So they do have a lot of catching up to do from their perspective. But their tactics of really infiltrating the media environments of countries in the global south. I will say that there's an intent behind this. There's a strong political will. There's, you know, as Tubia mentioned, a very, you know, centralized push that has recruited, you know, almost all of the bureaucratic machinery of the party state. Uh, so the intention's there, the investment is there. And even if currently the reach is maybe not as wide as Western media and, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, narratives, it, that there's an intention there and it's growing and there are significant resources behind it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at what it looks like now as a measure of, and then call it a day, uh, there's an intent and an investment there that speaks to China's seriousness about this. Tuvia, like one of the one of the really fascinating aspects of 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 the work that you do, is that is is that you kind of engaging with the real the real work and the real kind of utterances and and, and discourse put out by currently working Chinese intellectuals, like these, all of these really really prominent academics, um, you you know, and you you kind of quote and translate them at length. So over the over the time that you've done this work, have you seen how how have you seen the kind of tenor of the discourse? 
shift? Like, like you know, kind of where where did we come from, and and where where do you feel we're going in terms of like in terms of when you're listening to to these kind of prominent Chinese academics? Because from just from my own perspective, like frequently when I read when I read your newsletter and I see the kind of level of the kind of darkness or stridency is the wrong word actually like the, the kind of the, the tenor strikes me as, as as quite somber quite like the the, the the concepts like war come up a lot you know so I was wondering what like what, what you make of the mood like in, in in Chinese intellectual circles around these issues yeah so talking about shifts uh, my own view is very narrow it's just a couple of years you have to stretch it all the way back at least to the 90s if you want to talk about real seismic shifts in views, um, but, but there have been a couple of points uh, in recent memory that I can think of that kind of really uh, uh, deserve our attention. Uh, another thing I, wa- I want to just put out there, uh, China is a very big country, of course, and you're going to find many diverse uh, opinions on any given topic, uh, of course, uh, within orthodoxy, but it is very wide range. So if you're looking for an opinion about something, you're probably going to find it. And uh, that's why when we look at Chinese discourse about uh, specific topics, it's important to uh, keep that in mind that there are always going to be uh, people that disagree with it in China. Uh, And there are also people that are limited to say what they think because of censorship, because of the orthodoxy that they can go out against explicitly uh, without endangering their own career. Uh, With that in mind, uh, yes, I do see a couple of shifts, uh, especially since Trump came to power. And if we want to talk about discourse hegemony and power in the ugly sense of the world, then Trump is the master and the grand strategist. Just every time he used Twitter, half of the world, you know, ran scrambling to see what's going to happen. And for China, this kind of situation was impossible. Because it did not control the discourse. It always had to be on the receptive side. It had to be uh, reactive and not proactive. And at the same time, when you see a rise of what you call the wolf warriors, uh, I'm not a big fan of the term, but it does exist. And uh, you see a more combative China. And I I think much uh, credit has to be given to Zhang Weiwei. Uh, He's the head of the China Institute and uh, Fudan University. And he has established himself as a pundit that is gets uh, the leadership's ear. He was the lead discussant on a study session on telling the China story well last year uh, and establishing China's discourse power. And just watching his shows, I mean, I mean you don't have to look at anything else. You, you just see a giant cesspool of toxicity and pernicious ideas that are absolutely racist. They are absolutely combative, belligerent. They are supremacist. They're Han chauvinist. They're chauvinist against women, even. And it's not just him. He brings on guests from the cream of the crop of China's academy, uh, some of which work with him in Fudan. Uh, not to talk uh, bad things, Fudan is an excellent place. I have great scholars there. Uh, but you can see in his shows the, this very uh, toxic, really, uh, diatribe that is spoken about the West and his idea, and he said so himself, that I always look down on the West. That's what he says. And he wants to speak uh, to the West from a position of power because China has been spoken to, China has been scolded. But now it's time for the West to sit down and learn from China. So it's a lot like the tone of Fox News in many respects, just the Chinese equivalent of it. Uh, it, It's different because Fox News, they don't have, uh, what's his name, Tucker Carlson uh, be the main discussion in the White House uh, session on telling the voice of America well. uh, Yes and no. I mean, Sean Hannity was in direct contact with the White House on many occasions. Yeah, so I guess uh, the way you put it, it's and I agree, it's two sides of the same ugly, disgusting gutter uh, coin you find in the gutter, uh, where you got two people uh, speaking about each other and not with each other. It's a dialogue of the death, as one European uh, official uh, just described uh, China and Ukraine with Europe. And this, of course, is not conducive to bilateral relations and to, uh, to be fair, to China's own peaceful rise uh, with having this condescending 
a view of the world and uh, trying to fight back uh, the ugly way that the Trump administration used to do. I don't think it, it, it does any good to anyone involved. Well, if you would like to understand what these scholars are saying and what people like Zhang Weiwei are saying, you must subscribe to Discourse Power. It's at tuviagaring.substack.com. You can go and look at all the back archives. They're searchable. It is an amazing resource if you are a scholar or if you're an analyst or doing what we do and trying to stay on top of what Chinese scholars are saying domestically within China. Tuvia translates everything and puts it into a context which is absolutely invaluable. Tuvia, thank you so much for joining us. Tuvia is a non-resident fellow in the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub and a research fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Tuvia. Thank you very much. And also, Kenton Thibault is a resident China fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab in Washington. She's the author of a fascinating report, China's Discourse Power Operations in the Global South. Again, I will put the link in the show notes for you to go directly to it. Kenton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both for having me. Now, Kenton, are you on Twitter for people to follow what you're reading and writing? Yes, I am. I'm at at Kenton Tebow. Okay, we'll put a link to that. And Tuvia, tell us where people can find you. Thank you. It's uh, Gering Tuvia. Okay, again, links to all of that will be in the show notes. Kenton, Tuvia, have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Kobus, Tuvia's last point there about the hardening of the discourse and that it's not something that's unique to China is really important for us to put this in the broader context. I mean, again, just the fact that I'm in Washington right now having all these great meetings with people, there's nobody that's saying anything nice about China here. So the discourse in D.C. is universally negative about China. And one of the data points that they will use to validate their worldview on China is some of the Pew data that's come out of Global North countries and their perceptions of China. And they will say that in Europe, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Japan, in basically advanced economies, the public opinion about China is miserable, and it's at record lows. At the same time, what I try and remind them to say, while that is 100% true, there's no doubt that China's public standing in these countries is low and terrible and, and getting worse. At the same time, the data from Afrobarometer, the data from Arab Barometer, from the Ishikovitz poll that we just referenced in our newsletter a couple weeks ago about, I think it was something like 15 countries. They surveyed 5,000 young people, and for the first time, China's public approval uh, superseded that of the United States. There's a very different discussion that's happening in the global south than that's happening in the global north. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think one, one of the big reasons for that is is that development has, has, has become such a central part of China's messaging internationally. Um, and, you know, we, we're seeing the Global North trying to catch up with that, with that reality, you, you know, kind of by, by kind of putting a lot more attention into development and into the infrastructure provision particularly. Um, but, you know, kind of like that, that is something that I'm very interested in is, is exactly this kind of this, this issue of development as a, as a kind of a discursive field. Um, but I wanted to ask you, just in relation to to U.S. discourse in China, and the um, one one data point that I or one one kind of like phrase that I've seen coming up a lot in in in, in U.S. discourse about about China, is that they that they increasingly labeling China as an existential threat to the US. Um, so I was wondering what you think that actually means. Like are they are they talking nuclear war existential threat? Like 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 China might be like bombing them or like what what is the actual ex existential threat that they that they mean? Well I think it depends who's doing the talking. So for example when we've been talking about this base in Equatorial Guinea and you and I have come to the supposition, again it's not based on fact because we don't have any facts, but that it is the supposition that the United States military is concerned that the Chinese would use the base in Equatorial Guinea in order to resupply, to be able to provide their submarines the capacity to launch an ICBM on the eastern seaboard from the Atlantic Ocean. That is an existential threat, obviously. But when you talk to most people in the policy world, 
they look at China as a much more serious threat than the Soviet Union was during the Cold War because of China's wealth, its advancements in technology. It's a far more robust society, healthier society in many respects than the Soviet Union was at the height of its power. And so also there is this sense, this brooding sense that within the next five 10, 15 years, nobody knows for sure precisely when the Chinese economy will supersede that of the United States, will become the largest economy in the world. And there is this brooding fear that when that eventually happens, the United States will in fact be relegated to a second-tier power, much the same way that when the United States surpassed the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom became a second-tier power as well. And so there is this real anxiety here. The interesting thing here that I'm picking up is the fact that everybody agrees that China is a threat, China is a problem, and China is a challenge. Yet nobody agrees on what to do about it. The think tanks have one point of view. The military has one point of view. The executive branch has one point of view. The legislative branch has another point of view. And civil society actors here have a different point of view. And it's interesting because just last week, or was it the week before, but it was about, it was about a week or two ago, Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, was in Brazil and warning of Chinese colonialism and conquering of the Western Hemisphere and taking over Brazil and, 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 and South American countries. Much of the same rhetoric that we've heard for years about what the Chinese were doing in Africa, those fears about China conquering. And, and again, so you see this discourse now becoming increasingly shrill. It's not rooted in fact. It's more about anxieties, but it is a growing consensus, at least among policymakers and in the think tank space and in the intelligentsia, that China poses an existential threat to U.S. hegemony, maybe not an existential threat to the United States itself, but certainly to American power. It poses a very, very severe threat. That is the perception. Yeah, that that is the, that kind of like fuzzy kind of overlap is 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 what struck me too. Is that in a way, um, you know, in a way that that if if the U.S. uses loses this this you know, this kind of status as number one economy, that that is in itself a, a form of symbolic death, you know, not to sound too French theory about it, you know, but there is there is this kind of like feeling that if the US isn't no, is, isn't number one, like that's that itself is a, this kind of massive, massive kind of defeat, you know, kind of like being number two isn't good enough. Well, it, it depends how you define number one, because the way that Donald Trump and the MAGA forces define number one is very different than the more internationalist approach taken by the Democrats and the Biden administration. So the, the way that the MAGA folks define number one is you can pull up the drawbridges, become more isolationist, and it becomes America first. And that is a, in itself a form of number one, that we're taking care of America first. We saw what that was like in the Trump administration. We're going to probably see that in another Republican administration in 24. And, and, and But again, that definition of number one is quite flexible and fluid. It depends on, on who's saying it and what they, what they want. At, but at the end of the day, what's not going to change, whether it's a Democrat administration or a Republican administration here in Washington, is the fact that China is an existential threat to its hegemony. And, and I think there's some legitimacy to that. But at the same time, and I think Kenton was very good at pointing this out, there is the 10-foot-tall monster scenario here, where oftentimes people overstate Chinese power, they overstate Chinese competence, and they also overstate the effects and the success of Chinese propaganda and narrative building. And Kenton was very interesting in her point where she said they're far behind the U.S. and Europe still in propaganda and narrative building and, and shaping the discourse in the global arena, even in the global South, where public opinion is more favorable to them. Yeah, you know, kind of that that aspect um, is also something that, that I find really interesting. The, you know, because the thing is, obviously, the... The, the the power the messaging power that comes from western countries comes from such a kind of a complex and multi-channel multi-platform place you know it, it comes from a thousand different tv channels and movies and you know kind of like childhood experiences for people you know kind of a, that, that kind of like breadth of experience that one has even as someone in the global south as far away from from the global north that that kind of like from childhood kind of you know, kind of like living with 
American stuff or living with European, like the, the kind of the full breadth of, of kind of European or American influence, it's very different from, from the Chinese side, right? Kind of because with, with the, the Chinese side, there is strong influence, but it's only happening on a few, a few different, you know, kind of fields like, like, like development, for example. Um, and you know, and 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 so so on the one hand, like I, I see that discourse quite strongly, or that, that 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 difference quite strongly. But on the other hand, it also seems like a lot of uh, you know, like if one if one can talk about if there is even if, if that even makes sense to talk about a decline of Western influence, then I think a lot of it comes from the West itself, right? Kind of it comes from the West coming like seeming. Like like retreating from some of some of its kind of internationalist or inclusive kind of aspects, you know, kind of where where the where the Western culture itself is is drawing is, is pulling up the drawbridge and making itself more exclusive and less accessible for for global South people, um, you know. Whereas China itself is already seems extremely inaccessible, you know, kind of like China is all about central control. It's all about like this kind of like very controlled messaging, you know, kind of. You know, so, so I'm rambling a little bit, but like, but, but I was wondering whether you see that aspect of like being reflected in in your discussions with people in D, in DC at all. Like, whether there's any kind of like awareness of the impact of decisions within the U.S. on what what the U.S. looks like from the outside. No, it's very academic for them. The discussions that at least that I've seen here in D.C. are very much focused about domestic U.S. politics. A lot of the politics in the global south from the U.S. are oftentimes rooted in decision-making priorities that are, that are anchored firmly in domestic narratives in the United States. So there is, I don't, I don't think they're that that effective in terms of understanding w- the subtleties that you're referring to. And but just one other very quick point before we go. And again, this relates to our show that we had last week with Giraud talking about the pushback now against the Chinese in places like Guinea. We're seeing now a pushback even in, in Zimbabwe on the China Zhejiang Huayo Cobalt deal. Obviously, in the DRC, there's a very big drama that's playing out. It will be interesting to see if other countries pick up on this. There's a virality to this. I know that other Global South countries are watching these pushbacks very carefully to see how to play them the same way that Laos and Sri Lanka and other highly indebted countries to Chinese creditors are watching what happens in Zambia. So there's a lot of movement right now in the debt space, in the resource space, in the Global South that people are going to look at, and the Chinese will have a difficult challenge, I think, in terms of shaping the narratives on the outcomes of some of these issues, because these are coming from Global South actors. There's nothing to do with the United States. There's no involvement of the United States in Guinea. There's no involvement of the United States in the in the TFM mine issue, as far as we can tell. And at the same time, there is certainly no involvement in the United States with regards to the debt situation in Laos. So let's look at some of these, these debt issues and these resource issues coming from the global south and how they may impact China's narrative discourse going forward in the global south. Kobus, we said to Kenton and Tatuvia that we could have done another hour, another two hours on this. I'm desperately trying to make sure that we keep our show within a, within an hour, so we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, everybody, we're going to be taking a break next week. It's our annual summer recess. We take one week off in summer and one week off in the winter, so if you don't see a show come up in your in your feed. Don't worry, we'll be back the following week. I'll be in California there, so having a different perspective and talking to some of the tech companies and also talking about climate change quite a bit from California. So that will be very interesting. And then I'll be heading back to Vietnam shortly. We'll be continuing uh, the week after, so hopefully that you'll stay tuned for some great shows that we've got planned. We've got some amazing guests lined up for you. Also, of course, we want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Really just amazing. And now, Giraud is starting to put weekly video updates about everything that he's working on on the Francophone site to our Patreon supporters. So you're getting kind of access into Giraud. We give the weekly digest as well. And there's just this great conversation. Cobus and I are doing these private briefings for our Patreon supporters. So we would love to have you join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Also, if you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter as Kenton and Tuvia do, and they receive it every day, just go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. We've got monthly and annual subscriptions, $7 a month for students and faculty, and it's $149 a year for everybody else. So very affordable, but we are very proud of the work that the entire 
team is doing. We've got eight analysts and editors who are every day working so hard to put this out for you. And so we'd love for you to try it out. Give it a try. Once again, chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. So we'll see you back in two weeks after our short summer recess. And uh, until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic.